You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tracy Diamond from the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to celebrating the 2018 Poetry Contest finalists with Little Patuxent Review, featuring Kanuk Gupta, Stephen Leva, Rachel Hicks, Chelsea Lemon Fetzer, and Wallace Lane. The Pratt Library has held the Poetry Contest since 2012, partnering with different Maryland literary magazines. This year, there were over 236 poems submitted to the contest, representing 70 cities and towns and 19 counties in Maryland. It's an honor that so many Marylanders trust us with their creative work. We carefully debate the pieces, then send them to the magazine to make the final selections. And this year, we're really proud to have partnered again with Little Patuxent Review. Little Patuxent Review reflects and draws upon the creativity and diversity of the Mid-Atlantic region and beyond by promoting the literary and visual arts in print and throughout the region's community and educational venues. I mean, as you can see from the cover, um, it's art from Fawn. Fawn, whose work is featured in the BMA, which you haven't, if you haven't seen it already, it's an incredible exhibit. Um, but I'm going to bring up your host, Stephen Leva. Uh, Stephen is the Little Patuxent Review Editor, a Cave Conum Fellow, the winner of the 2012 Cobalt Review Poetry Prize, and author of the chapbook Low Parish. Stephen holds an MFA from the University of Baltimore, where he is an assistant professor in the School of Communication Design. What should be added to his bio is how much he cares for other poets. As you read his work or work with him, you see the care he has for the written word and the people that create it. I mean, you really should just go follow him on Twitter if you don't already. Um, because as he recently said, which was really inspiring, keep going, poets. You aren't being left behind. Celebrate those who have new books. One day the confetti will be for you. So let's celebrate tonight. Please welcome Stephen Leva. Thank you so much, Tracy. It is a great honor to be back at the Pratt Library celebrating the Enoch Pratt Free Poetry Contest. I think Little Patuxent Review has judged it uh, maybe four times, and it's always been something that has just been um, heartwarming and really great um, to be able to work with such talented and intelligent people here at the Pratt, and people who really care about literature. I always feel like it's coming home a little bit here, um, and it's just good to be here with all of you to get into all this verse we're about to get into. Um, thanks for coming out on a little bit of a rainy day. Um, we are going to jump right in, and I'll be hosting and reading some of the bios of the poets that are going to present tonight, and I'll be presenting some poetry as well. I'm going to be your fulcrum, so I'm right in the middle, you know, seesaw on me. Um, but one of the things I think you're going to notice about each of the writers, they're wildly diverse in the way in which they approach uh, poetry, but many of us are all writing about place and the different ways in which place and people become metaphors for one another. Right? So we're in this recursive relationship with the places that we live and the places that we die and the places that we have our hopes and dreams. And I think a lot of that will come to the surface, um, particularly in a time where our sense of place can be destabilized with everything going on in the world and in our country. It's nice to come back to the um, certitude and the mystery of verse, um, talking about what place can do. So without further ado, our first reader is Rachel E. Hicks. She was runner-up for the poetry contest. Rachel's poems have appeared in St. Catherine Review, Welter, Off the Coast, Gulfstream Magazine, and other journals. She also writes essays and fiction and works as a freelance copy editor. An associate editor at Del Sol Press, she also served as the 2018 Poetry Out Loud Regional Coordinator for the Maryland State Arts Council, whom we love. Um, after living in eight countries, most recently China, she now resides in Baltimore. Her career has included teaching high school English and homeschool and volunteering with an international relief and development agency 
You can find her at online at rachelehicks.com. Please welcome Rachel. opportunity as well as um, the editors of Little Class and Review. Um, I'm honored to be reading here tonight. So um, as was mentioned, I'm going to be reading a little bit about place. Um, I was born and um, spent the early childhood, my early childhood in India, um, moved to a number of different uh, countries and continents and landed back in India for my last two years of high school and then uh, most recently lived in China with my family for seven years. Um, so when people ask me where I'm from, I, I still don't have a ready answer. And um, in the U.S., I feel a bit like a hidden immigrant because um, I feel different on the inside based on all my experiences, but I know that I look like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't always know what I'm doing. So um, that sense of uh, what place means to me and what it, um, how it forms my identity is a big part of my writing. Um, this poem that... Um, that was the runner-up in the contest uh, deals with, helps me to deal with that uh, mystery, I guess, and uh, my identity and sense of place. Uh, the exile speaks of mountains. In the Himalayan foothills during monsoon, the electricity once stayed off for 15 days. Every morning there was chai with sugar cubes and buffalo milk delivered to our kitchen door in tin carafes strapped with thick ropes to a mule. We kept warm by feeding the stove log after log, and entertained by watching our spit sizzle on its tin top. My brother held my hand on the trail to and from school, scanning for leopard scab or for thieving langur monkeys in the trees. I write this from my brick colonial in Baltimore, decades removed, drinking black tea with thick cream and sugar, the heat of exile churning in my blood. I drive an SUV, shop at Target, and fight tears at random moments, like when I open the door and enter the Punjab store down on 33rd, suddenly and viscerally at home among the turmeric and cardamom, the neem soaps and steaming samosas under foil on the counter, while the kind owner offers a mango juice box to my daughter. Only if I embrace this life as a perpetual pilgrim do I find solace in remembering the terraced cemetery in the Himalayan pines where the mute woman and her donkey guard the graves, the distant beat of tabla drums, the bounce of our flashlights on the trail, walking home at night, thrill of leopards in the dark, the high peak of Bunderpunch to the north, glowing in midnight. Um, there are several key things I either didn't know about myself or at least didn't say out loud until about my 30s. Um, one is that I'm a writer. Another is that I'm a fairly extreme introvert, as I'm thinking a lot of writers are. And um, third is that I really love cold weather. I did not know that about myself um, growing up. This is an untitled uh, poem that I'll read now. I came home to November in my late 30s child of deserts, lizards, dried mung bean pods, rubber sandals stuck to hot tar, and tropics, monsoon rains pounding a tin roof, low clouds like gauze in my mouth, skitter of roaches when the light is flipped. Cold November is welcome mystery, half-lit mix of blaze and gray, lonely in the best sense of the word, moonstone sky, gnarled, naked branches flung up like gang signs against lava sunsets. Introverted, November makes no demands, swirls around my ankles, leaves or fog, sings in a minor key, needs tea in the afternoon, fewer words. Um, my next poem uh, was uh, second place in the Maryland Writers Association Poetry Contest in 2016 and was published in Pen and Hand. Um, I like to think about the tangible consequences of different cultural worldviews um, and how they uh, impact societies and humans at a very real level. And um, 
My faith informs me that embodied in each culture is beauty and truth, but also some distortion and brokenness. And so my next poem, it looks at uh, what it costs um, us as cultures and societies where women and girls are devalued and seen as burdens. This is birth of the girl child. Raising a daughter is like watering your neighbor's garden, traditional Indian proverb. When she emerges in blood and mucus, the birthing room steeps in quiet fury. Husband twitches, aghast, when told through the curtain. Disappears into the yawning twilight, oncoming dark, scent of drought. On the pallet, knuckles against teeth, wife is silent, freshly emptied. Already she's dodged the fire in mother-in-law's eyes and hands for insufficient dowry. Now, this girl. She trembles, foresees how rivers will run dry, and dust choke and strangle the mechanisms of the turning world because of the disappeared. Thinks, the earth is sodden with our secrets, with the blood of our beliefs. Mother-in-law squats beside the pail, which is sufficiently deep, and the drought is already in the sea and in the breast. Another theme that I'm drawn to writing about is the idea of broken relationships, um, that we somehow keep failing to connect with and honor one another and um, ourselves and even our connection with nature, with God, the divine, um, in the way that we feel like we're meant to. We fall short, and so the next uh, couple poems relate to that theme. Uh, the first is The Coveted Gift. This was published in Off the Coast. Last month, I was given this gift, deceitfully wrapped in white linen, and delivered word by gentle word by my doctor with the tired eyes. Two months to live, staring up at me, unblinking, innocent as only death can be. And that was the moment when the life breath of everything ever created lifted me on hushed, thick wings, enabling me to cast my scream upon the waters. I have all the world to give. Now, instead, I am merely going home, empty-handed. But you, even now, show me your splay palm while your other fist clenches tight, meeting a sharp hole in the small of your back. Your concealed palm perspires with unspecified guilt, hiding the coveted gift, you. Suddenly, I am without want, running over with pity. Um, this next poem was published in Relief, a journal of art and faith. Um, title is, It Wasn't Odd. Last night, I dreamed my elderly neighbor sought me out, found me upstairs in my bedroom. Miss Dinty, her trademark black baseball cap, gold crown teeth flashing a grimace this time, not her mischievous smile, climbed into the bed I had just vacated in surprise remarked on its warmth in the early light. I'm dying, she said, shivering. It's coming now, baby. I hovered, then climbed in beside her, wrapped my arms around her, whispered, how do you know? Maybe I didn't ask her aloud. She just breathed in, then out. Because it was a dream, it wasn't odd that the two of us lay there, warming, silent, unafraid that I wanted this to be how she was ushered on. Thank you. There's a quote by the Caribbean scholar and poet, Lassant, that says, we understand the land better when we tremble with it. And I really felt that when we were listening to Rachel's work. Thank you so much, Rachel. Let's give another hand for Rachel. I, too, am an introvert, so I will definitely be alone after all of this, um, um, except for drinks later. It's my pleasure to introduce our next poet who helped judge the contest. Her name is Chelsea Lemon Fetzer. 
she is a dear friend of mine. Before I read her bio, she's a dear friend of mine and frequent um, collaborator on the playground. We'd have many long conversations while our kids were um, playing after school. Um, and someone I was so glad chose to work with Little Protestant Review and add her voice, a voice we needed very dearly. Um, it, we were enriched because of it. Chelsea is a Little Protestant Review poetry reader, holds a BA from Sarah Lawrence College and an MFA in fiction from Syracuse University. Her fiction and poetry have appeared in journals such as Callaloo, Tin House, Mississippi Review, and the Minnesota Review. A selection of her poetry received the honor of finalists for the 2015 Venture Award, and her debut pamphlet chapbook is in the works. Her nonfiction essay, Speck, was published in The Beijing of America, Personal Narratives About Being Mixed Race in the 21st Century, an anthology published by Two Leaf Press in 2017. Committed to bringing the literary arts to communities of all means, Fetzer has led writing workshops through the, creative, the CREATE Collective, PEN America's Center Readers and Writers Programs, the Black Writers Conference at Medgar Evers College, the New York Writers Coalition, the University of Baltimore, and independently. She be working, y'all. Professor <laughs> continually, li er, currently lives in Baltimore, where she is mothering, working on her first novel, and serving on the board of City Lit Project. Please give it up for my homie and dear friend, Chelsea. <laughs> Hi, this is really nice to be here. Thank you for having us. Um, congratulations again on the court she got. There you are. Um, congratulations, Rachel. It was such a pleasure to read your work. I feel so honored to have been on the only group of judges that was allowed to make such an incredibly difficult choice. Um, I didn't realize that place was like an umbrella theme today, but I feel that somehow I intuited it because I chose a couple of poems that are I'm working with that, not all of them, but um, it's really nice to hear how other writers are kind of um, working with that, translating it, and what places stick with us in our work. I'm going to just sneak this one in first, though, because it's almost the end of summer. And a fun fact about me is that my birthday is June 21st, which is usually the first day of summer. So I feel really that summer and I have a special relationship. So I wrote this for summer, and it's almost over. Born on June 21st, summer as vanishing point. As clothesline, sweet talking mud stain, sweat as jewelry. Body of water disturbed as pile of bicycle wheels spun. As your sliced hair is magnified under a deer fly's wing, summer as given name. Eyeglasses relocated as vehicle built from lost map, as the truth roof. Ancestors' arms swept into tire swing for the family tree, as root remembered, as recipe where the strawberry seed sparks between your teeth. So I actually grew up in Minnesota, as I was telling Rachel's family, and I still go there to visit old friends. And one really dear friend of mine, Emily, who still lives there, was going through a really rough spring, and I was helping her through it after that. I, I wrote this poem. It's called Even the Far Out Songs. Emily's drunk on $3 wine. Backbone's crooked again, her tower of fists, so she has to lie flat on the floor. Says, I could spend 10 years in someone's lap, them smoothing my hair, them saying, I love you, you're so pretty and still it won't be enough. This may belongs to the tent caterpillars, furred, dropping. They ride the shirts of bicyclists around Lake of the Isles, clump on sidewalks, orgies of appetite. Their markings lure like stained glass. As kids, 
We pet their blues so careful before sentencing coffee cans full to mom's yard fire. Emily, racing strangers on Highway 94, sings the new favorite. Listen to the words, a man falling backward in snow. She sings her father's name, Michael. Heart attack on Valentine's is a hard act to follow, though her husband's hurry to be weeks later offered no deference, blew the spotlight. And music still shows up, like letters from heaven the thief to this worst year. When Emily sings, even the far out songs turn about her all along. Here I go at fourth grade, through a cup thrift shop cognate shirt, shedding litter on yellow grass. Emily's Frankenstein caked with mud. She dug up a blue rhinestone from you near that old fence. See, it used to sparkle, our secret deep, deep under the thaw. Little strangers run the schoolyard now. Dirt storms taking their turn being kids. We don't get to be storms anymore. We forget buried treasure. Surviving ten caterpillars erupt into okra, moss, at last made pilgrimage to the top of the Foshe Tower, where approximately 900 bulbs wait to singe their wings. No one notices, unless they're from someplace else. Lovers renting a room in the W Hotel, pretend a more glamorous city, mistake moths for shooting stars, for the rumor of still one more snow. I search the alleyway behind Emily, starting over again, again, apartment, counting what the basswood surrendered. Maple leaves eaten up. Tell her, what if hunger starts a new picture? This leaf a cupping like your face paint moon. Here, a whale's eye. This one, barely a net to puzzle sunlight, not too wrecked to get picked up. Legs like a colt. 
I always believed in his velvet arms anyway, how they could hug tight enough to burst your heart. Never mind. Don't get me paradise. I want to stay here, where sunset returns to paint the wall with fingers of flame. And my daughters are now, weaving toilet paper into the legs of chairs, to table, to chairs, white garlands pretending something to celebrate. And at times uplifted, simply, by the traps we make walking past.
always um, amazed at the different places that inspiration for a poem can come from. Um, so I'm going to just hop right in to a few new poems of mine. And the first one is called At the Edge of Chitlin Circuit. Shout out to anyone who ever had ate chitlins and uh, black eyed peas on New Year's for good luck. At the Edge of Chitlin Circuit. And it came like a wet pig snout seeking the brush for the last truffle, the growing gnaw that you were not good enough. You did not have an Atlantic to cross. You did not have a trauma anyone was buying. Your tongue grew banal as a calm sea. Eyes you dreamed were artillery have had their hoods drawn over. You aren't worthy of a stray bullet. In the fitfully coy Maryland winters, you saw an unused sepulcher. You thought of the cut marble the pallbearers slid your grandmother in. You thought of licking the bacon grease from a used pan when the fridge was barren. You thought of playing spades on the hood of a car and losing a few books going blind. Nothing was to blame but your own imagination. You have no place to come back from. No one calls it a comeback when you started from the bottom and return like a muddy, like a muddy nose that can't stop sniffing the pot of cleaned greens and hock cooking for the new year. How many years without a single black-eyed pea before the ancestors cease to weep? How many entrails must you eat? Uh, when I was in college, I thought I was going to be the next Denzel Washington. I was studying acting. That did not work out. Um, became a poet instead. My dad was basically like, you sort of moved laterally in terms of risk. Um, but I had the opportunity to play John Proctor in The Crucible. Um, some of you may have read that in school. So here's a poem called Playing Proctor. It starts with an epigraph from the play. God help me, I lusted, and there is promise in such sweat. John Proctor from The Crucible. One thing you need to know, um, in order to play the role, they put me in a straightened wig. Um, so many of the audience members thought that I was Native American. Um, given this ruddy, straightened wig, no one could place my face on a spectral scale of ethnic. I slid on and off stage. I spoke plain. I didn't name names. Some audiences mistook me for generally native. I spoke in first person. Under that wig, I wore cornrows in the Oklahoman emaciated winter. Arthur Miller was writing about hysteria, which can sound like tepid applause. Inside the theater, the set was minimal, an askew cross, brown flats mimicking wood, our acting voices restrained with Puritan diction. Everything seethed. Nothing was faithful, least of all the weather. Goody was on many lips. The wind outside mobbed the building like a pack of crows. I witnessed daily the end of American Plains after removing the stage makeup in this wig. On the marquee of a wash basin-shaped convention center, another man of God come to town. Fifty years before, Miller wet his thumb, and now his lines are in my mouth. Common vengeance writes the laws. A lead role. We left realism in the 19th century, and look what remains. We wanted a straight play about paranoia. But outside the theater, horizon's bloody lip, a monostitch, a needle in a pocket. So this is a little bit like a poetic cruise. We're going to be traveling to some different places. So we're in, just in Oklahoma. Now we're going to be in New Orleans, where I was born. New Orleans, dog star, in vinyl overlay on a drowned living room. 
floor. The great storm with its incantations could not return this star to the heavens. It remains like Prometheus, Pekat, and Shadon. Even the suitors of dawn did little to mend the embarrassment looking up through a roofless house. The dust sighs shing shing on a granite floor with only mocking to be heard in the church bells clearing the throat of the wind. The star points its accusations in every direction except at God. If there is a fault here, it rests below the foundations where this city is always begging to add another parish to Atlantis. <laughs> I wish it wasn't true. Anti-confessional. The poem says, I've been made up like a Mardi Gras mask, a purple feather, history's glitter, a slot for each eye. Like Divine in the dressing room trailer humming, Good morning, Baltimore. Like anybody lifted by its own bootstraps, an ascension lies on the sky. The poem announces all suffering must end and proceeds into the afterlife of metaphor. There is still a door. The poem asks the dead, where have you gone? Then wraps its knuckles on a desk. Anti-confessional. Do you all know the song, um, Higher Love? 80s? Have that melody in your mind. <laughs> this isn't a secret. I have failed to love with the patience of hibiscus root, whose buds bloom with no thought of being tea. I have not loved my innocence, overdressed in moaning light. How can the earth keep turning to the thing that will kill it? Oh, sun, bring me a warm hill in August, an echo of a fragile and immortal green, a better remembrance of my grandma's eyes. I have failed to forget love is one of many higher choruses. And yes, there are octaves of light that linger. Undressed, brown rhyming with itself, steeped in a bedroom's dust, Dust doing what it must, revealing where light might touch. Seventeen, willing to yearn. Can we still call love, love anymore? Or have we avoided failure? Every ode must fail if there is to be a higher love. Just going to do one more. Um, or maybe two more. Do two more. Um, one, stay in New Orleans, and one about professional wrestling. So, <laughs> ends of the spectrum. This is called Ear Hustle. Is anybody a fan of the band Taken the Bangers? If you have not heard their Tiny Desk concert at NPR, go look that up, because it is fire! Ear Hustle. They're also from New Orleans, so I stand for them. Ear Hustle. Get down to the smallest birthright I cannot claim. Say beignets, and doesn't a hot oil anointing start to sizzle the small plates of memory? Faces powdered with sugar, no thought to whose ancestors cut which cane. Sing a hymn of mmm, mmm, mmm. Jackson Square hangs its portraits on the iron gates. And who can hold a horn note as long as the midday sun? Look up from the small plate in Café Olay and see the bent levee of language I cannot break. I will shame every shibboleth. And every house is lifted like a paused rapture. This cruelty and more 
fries the Godhead in lard. Pour me a cup of chicory. A saxophone player cuts a canal through the breakfast den, playing tank in the bangers. I gotta make a quick decision, very quick, <laughs> about how often I can be rescued. Neither I nor my children will ever ride the roller coasters at Jazzland, where a sign still hangs as it does in the heavens, will open after storm. All right. My brother and I grew up watching a ton of television, and we watched a lot of WWF, Andre the Giant, Hulk Hogan, and some lesser-known folks like Jacques Dog, um, some problematic folks like The Sheik. Um, but there was this one wrestler called Sid Vicious, not the bassist, the wrestler. This is a vicious ode. You want to talk about the bassist. I want to talk about the wrestler, Mr. Yudi, his ruddy skin and late addition to the four horsemen. How fashionable to be late to the apocalypse. God only knows why I remember the flare, Mr. Rick in his hair, the color of clean urine, his horse, woo, called into the stadium's black ether. Sid followed that call, jumping off the top rope of obscurity into the television, blinking out the 80s and Reagan, WCW and WWF like Marvel and DC, my brother and I couldn't decide which one we liked best, and saved our hate for the roaches crawling on the cathode tube. We wrestled with the couch cushions and flipped channels to American gladiators. Sid faded from our glow, quickly then slow. We preferred the viciousness to come from someone we didn't know, like remembering the theme song and forgetting the show. Good? Good. It is, I'm so glad um, that you have been such a gracious audience, um, and I have the great pleasure of introducing our next poet. He was a student of mine, and it is one of life's great joys to see one of your students surpass you in every way when it comes to poetry. So you are in for a treat when you hear his, his verse and his poems. Wallace Lane, a Little Patuxent Review contributor, is a poet and author from Baltimore, Maryland. He received his MFA in Creative Writing and Publishing Arts from the University of Baltimore in May 2017. His poetry has appeared in Skelter, The Avenue, Welter, and Rise Up, and is forthcoming in several other literary journals. Wallace also works as a teacher with Baltimore City Public Schools, and you can buy his first book, Jordan Year, right here at the table after the reading. Please welcome the incredible Wallace Lane. Wow. Thank you, Stephen. I'm not about great. I'm still learning from you a lot, so it's humbling. How's everyone doing? Great. A lot of familiar faces in the audience. What's up, y'all? So I'm going to be reading uh, one poem from my collection, Jordan Year, which is uh, like this thought roller coaster of my life at the age of 23. Jordan Year is a popular social media hashtag. <clears throat> so I'll be reading a poem from here. Um, the poems start from the age of seven and they journey up to the age of 23. Hence Jordan Year, Michael Jordan's old jersey number. I stole it from social media, but hey. Great artist still. Um, so I'll be reading uh, three new poems also. So um, I'm always excited to get in front of our audience and read some new work. Uh, this first poem is called Requiem, and uh, Re Requiem is a, a Catholic mass. Um, I was at a, a Catholic mass ceremony for my uncle, and my mom and dad were sitting on the same row, and they're actually divorced. So this poem actually made me think about um, me having a first crush. And it's after turn says this poem. Requiem. <clears throat> they are like those school lovers at recess 
Ashen and silent passion, they once held for each other. On the same pew of my great uncle's funeral, all shallow and subtle. You not gonna tell mine to sit back here with us? My baby sister asks, as a sermon serves from the pulpit, but I've held the high truth in my mouth before. Tia and I used to voyage home after school, step over empty baggies, fill condoms and piss, each as shapeless as our destiny. We used to pick up the still lit butt ends of cigs and place the unsmoked in our mouths. She wouldn't remember this now at this place of requiem, wailing women in tears, a corpse croaked by, with a smile by the organ that cries in every black church. My father wraps his arms around the shoulder of his new lover, and I'm five pews away. <clears throat> the whole scene choked in nostalgic, his tear patting my back while smoke consumed my lungs. His hands calming this new lady's lips like how tear promised we would never tell our parents. Mouth and throat burning with the secret between us. We vowed to never speak on it, but I remember our pack better than I can remember my parents' marriage. Maybe me and Tia held something they should have held. How could I not find this haunting? How this union still wraps them in the shadow. How the music's vibrato shakes the stiffness of what's dead. Thank you. So I'm excited to get into some new stuff. Um, I spent a week, about two weeks ago, I went to a writers' conference in DC for emerging and established black poets. Uh, it's called Hurston Wright at Howard University. Um, so I, I learned a lot about my writing, needless to say. Um, the professor was Tiffany Unique, which is a, uh, she's an established poet and nonfiction uh, writer. So she was very intimate with us. And you know, I told her I was from Baltimore. She said, "Wow, you're you're traumatized. A lot of your poems have these sad sad themes to them." And I, I totally agree. So this next poem um, is called "Mama Was an Avenger." I have a four-year-old son. Um, he loves the Avengers. When I grew up, I was a DC guy. Shout out to Steven, he's teaching a uh, Batman class this uh, fall. <laughs> but I was, a, I, I was a, a, a Batman guy, so, and my son has me watching a lot of Avengers. So I, I took this idea and I just played around with it. It's called Mama Was an Avenger. My mama, no gauntlet bearer or government injected experiment. No infinity stone, but more like the first Avenger, a gangster to Saturday morning cleaning. A bully to the galactic universe of a bathroom and kitchen. No god like him. <clears throat> Just a hard brimming old dustpan she beat me with. A peacemaker. But mop on tile violence, she was with all of that. Mama was Ant-Man in the wasp between dirty creases and crevices. <laughs> Just her bare hands gone numb and soggy as cereal left alone. Each dish a battle to her fingers, discoloration. Each crinkle a war scar. Them hands of hers, like Thanos's, once brought down an entire army of roaches. Her music of choice, Janet Jackson's, that's the way love goes. My mama, no vigilante philanthropist in an iron suit. No vibranic armor from Wakanda, just her apron. As solid as Captain America's shield. Her cussing and carrying on across our Section 8 housing. Her ritualistic cleaning habits. Her screaming about filth to daddy over top of my Saturday morning cartoons. Shit, mama was an Avenger. Thank you. <laughs> so this next poem, can everyone hear me like this? So this next poem, uh, I write a lot about uh, memory, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm in my thoughts a lot. Uh, and this next poem really caused me to just really think um, about those traumas that I've been with. So not only am I... A victim, or have I been traumatized as an African American? But I've also been traumatized as uh, self hatred, with self hatred, uh, colorism in my own community, um, gentrification, and um, poverty. So this poem really caused me to think of it. Uh, it's called Landmarks. And I have an epigraph or a quote, a song lyric from the great uh, R.B. Grime, aka Drake. And it's, it reads, yeah, I'm light-skinned, but I'm still a dark nigga. So landmarks. <clears throat> Ain't make me, so it won't break me. My Sunday school teacher told me to say to a school, a choir of bullies in sync and in harmony on our school's playground shouting, white boy, cracker, faggot in my ear. And I'm not ashamed to say it. 
But not far from there was a narrow strip of traffic I planned to run into, killing my skin, cursing the parents who made me, washing away black ink drawn on my forehead, freeing the captive crayon I used to scribble death notes across my desk, purging the fat handled scissors they used to nick my dotted lines. I hated being black. And as a man, I'm honest about it now. Because aren't our saddest memories like physical landmarks? Because name-calling rots and rusts like the monkey bars of abandoned playgrounds? Because politicians bully schools into apartment complexes all the time? Thank you. This last poem I had fun with, um, one of our prompts in D.C. was to go to uh, a landmark, and we went to the Vietnam Memorial Wall um, at the National Mall, and we had to write an aphrastic poem. And what a aphrastic poem is basically you observe a piece of art, and you just get in tune with the art, and you just write what you feel from the art. Um, and I spent three hours in respect and reverence um, just looking at this wall, um, just taking in these names. It's, it's about 58,022 names, and I was just taking in those names and just reading these names and seeing the people that were, you know, who gave their life. Um, and this poem is in response to the great Yusef Komayaka's poem. It's called Facing It. And uh, it was published in 1988, which is 30 years. 30 years ago, it's 2018. So the name of this poem is called At the Vietnam Memorial Wall, circa 2018. My blue sneakers fresh in the granite's reflection. A Nike swoop beneath the dead's name. This black mirror mirroring my blackness itself as a memorial. I'm empty again. A Trump supporter pushes aside her children. An assemblage of magma hats cocked backwards. Each child crowned in the colors of America. Grass peaks over top of each memorialized sleep. Gently I tiptoed through this unheard history. This backwards grave. This place of for martyrs. A cell. I marched towards Pennsylvania and North Avenue. No, I'm walking. I'm ignorant. 58,022 names. All in the name of freedom. The woman schools her young daughter. I walk past them with the stone's progression. Each step, my silent protest. A wall he said he would build, right? Patriotism inside my bowl of famine. Damn it, I said I wouldn't do it. I'm lost in the names like the smoke burning from pharmacies and shoe stores. A city looting for my freedom. A park ranger lectures a small class of eagers. Her cursor points as she talks, but her words go mute. I'm inside the stone. Small pockets of student gathered by a bus stop. I hear the name gray and the words justice, peace, and purge. But it's quiet. It's dark. I'm lonely. I'm outside the stone at the center. Mondam in the hub of my city, connecting this east wing of this veteran memorial wall to its west. I'm inside the stone again. No, I'm out. I've reached to touch the name John Arthur, his memory engraved into 36-year-old rock. A crowd of respect payers behind me. They chant no justice, no peace. No, they say our country, our freedom. No, they say grandpa is right there. I'm empty again. Thank you. It's so fitting that Wallace ended on a poem that pays homage to a famous poem from the canon because we were so struck by what um, we as judges read in uh, the winning poem for the Enoch Pratt Free Poetry Contest, which also pays homage to the canon in other poems and does something new with it, right? That old modernist uh, adage, make it new, make it new. Um, and we are so delighted to have the Enoch Pratt Free Poetry Contest winner, uh, Kanaka Gupta, um, here to read her winning poem. Uh, she is currently trying her luck in Baltimore as an undergraduate at Johns Hopkins University. She likes reading and writing and living stories and poetry. 
please welcome her and her winning poem with a loud round of applause. <laughs> kid with the <laughs> I just uh, I just didn't have printer money <laughs> okay so um, this poem is called a death in Dubai it's uh, where I've been living for the last five years so places uh, the theme carries on uh, it has two parts um, the first part is called variations on variations on a text by Vallejo and uh, as uh, Stephen said, it's, it's, uh, it's an imitation of an imitation of a poem. Um, it says, uh, the, the imitation was by Donald Justice, uh, R.I.P. Um, and uh, uh, he imitated a poem by Cesar Vallejo. And the point of it was um, the writers predicting their own death and why they think they will die the way they do. So I'm gonna jump right into it. I will die in Dubai under the faint drizzle of a foggy morning with buildings rising out of the mist, growing taller with the arch of the sun. 13 days later, I will be cremated, quietly. The flickering flames in the desert sun creating pools, in, pools of water in the eyes of the onlookers, standing at a distance. A lawyer will watch separated from the family, yet dressed identically, in white, with a somber expression. It will be a Saturday, like today, uncharacteristic for the season, with heavy heat covering the paved ground like a blanket, and the air standing solemnly over the still waters of the tile lakes, and the sun reflecting on the glass towers in place of rain seeping into them. And I know it will be a Saturday, because today I dug deeper and deeper until I broke through my lungs, trying to find blood in the ink of my pen, only to find ink in my veins instead. My phone buzzed with a weekly reminder to call my mother. I ignored it once again. Kanakupta is dead. The pyre burned, not in the desert, but solitary, in a field behind a mall the city's only crematorium. The barren ground stretched until it reached the perfectly green grass from which sprouted the steel giants, witness to a rare sight. No one dies in Dubai. The lazy haze mangled the metal and concrete around the field. The broken circle of white grew thinner until only the family remained, holding at bay the gray clouds of the season that took me away. It stayed stationary and silent, long after the droning of the chants faded. The glass towers loomed above it all, reflecting the dying embers. The second part of this poem is called Obituary, and unlike the first part, which speculates about a death, it is about a real death in Dubai. <clears throat> Two days ago, Ahmed and I sat in the, in the Dubai metro. Quietly, he told me, a woman jumped in front of my train in Toronto. I saw her as I left. Metro lines would be closed due to personal injury, they tweeted. So unremarkable, as if it happens every day. I wonder how many of these closures are someone's only obituary. In New York, I had read, subway workers often share their break rooms with the bodies of jumpers yet to be collected tossed aside nameless data points. At least Dubai has glass barriers blocking the tracks on the stations. You couldn't jump if you wanted to, not that anyone would want to. Toronto and New York need to catch up. It's that easy, we joked. Two days later, driving along Jumeirah metro line, my aunt clicked her tongue. A man killed himself in front of a train today. But the tracks of glass barricades he must have climbed up one of the service stairs on the flyovers. I turned to my phone, and in seconds I had it. A tweet from an hour after the accident. Notice, Dubai Metro Service is back to normal at Norbank Metro Station. Thank you for your cooperation.
the second poem is called Attachment Styles, Ainsworth, 1970. That's APA citations for any psych nerds out there. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very different from the tone of the last poem. It's a bit of an absurdist comedy, or at least I hope it's a comedy, um, about just weird relationships and like parental relationships, I guess. Uh, my parents are here, and they're really nice people, so I must, I, I must disclaimer this with the whole all characters are fictitious and any resemblance is purely coincidental. <laughs> okay, so here goes. You run into your father, who abandoned you five years ago, at the grocery store. You, A, hide behind the Campbell Can Soup Mountain. B, Talk about the weather, the news, and how you can't pay for college. C. Maul him with a pack of baby diapers in his cart. If you picked A, you chose eternal embarrassment and an avoidant attachment style. You hide behind the pyramid of tin cans, hoping the canned soup can save lives outside a nuclear bunker. But alas, your slightly quivering cocky-clad buttocks protruding from behind your cover pique your father's curiosity. You hear a throat being cleared behind you. He calls out your name like a question. Your trembling stops. You stand stock still, still a little hunched over, a deer before the hunt. Slowly, very slowly, you turn around. Excuse me, you ask. He repeats your name. Um, I think you've got the wrong person. Your eyes look for the exit, but it hides beyond a labyrinth of things you only need when you see them. Now, if you run past your father, jump over the baby being dragged by its mother's ankles, take a right and run diagonally past the produce, you could exit through the flower store without having to wait in line at the billing cap. A hand. A hand on your shoulder. His. Your survival instincts kick in. You flee with an almighty click, almighty kick you start forwards, leaving behind the thunderous cacophony of the small liquid-filled drums you accidentally kicked to the ground in your roadrunner-esque escape. And as you shove over the people in the express lane, then dash to the nearest door to freedom, with all eyes on you at the store and your father looking at you with pity, all you can seem to say is, meet me. <laughs> if you pick B, you have a secure attachment style towards the guy that abandoned you, and that's just fucked up. A strange hope balloons in your chest. Maybe if he likes you this time around, he'll leave his new family and return to you. Maybe you can bitch about your dad returning home drunk every night like Ricky's old man. So you approach him with a face-splitting grin. Greet him like a fond old acquaintance. So the weather is nice today, you say. Uh, I lost the poem. <laughs> uh, so the weather is nice today, you say. He looks out into the hail in the parking lot and hesitantly agrees. He's too afraid to do otherwise. You continue the small talk, though, until he, surprised at his luck, relaxes, lets out a few laughs and starts asking you about your life. So, what college are you going to? Time to shine, buddy. Show him you're all grown up. Oh, I'm not going to college. Well, I got into a few universities, but even with the scholarships I was offered, I couldn't afford it. What with the rent, the electricity bills, the monthly payments at the rehab mom is at? It's no big deal, though. Not like I would have been able to find time for classes between the three jobs I'm working. Your dad stares at you with blank, white eyes, mouth agape. Oh, you've lost him. If you picked C, you're an insecure little shit. But you knew that already. Your therapist of five years won't shut up about it. You try to remember, what, if, what would you say if you saw your father again, exercise you've ever had with her? But your brain is filled with dark static. Ah, you yell and charge at him from the opposite end of the aisle. His face contorts into a perfect replica of Munch's scream. You ram into his cart, still yelling, now in pain, clutching your stinging pelvic bone. He finally recognizes you, sputters your name. Are you, are you okay? His voice, oh, that smug, crating voice. You motherfucking asshole, you piece of shit, you... Your string of profanities devolves into incoherent shouting again. People are looking at you, but you don't care. You attack him with the first thing you can get your hands on and repeatedly bash him on the head with it. Panting, after several beatings to his cowering body, you wonder, why is he not bleeding yet? You look at the object in your hand. It's a pack of Huggies baby diapers. 
Never has the image of a cooing baby filled someone with so much rage. You tear open the plastic bag with your bare hands raised above your head. White diapers speckled with pink teddy bears rain on you. If you could turn green and large, now would be the time. You look around wildly for a sharper object. Your eyes fall upon the display of kitchen knives, the same time as your father's do. You run towards the knives, he runs towards the door. Security, security! He sounds like a scared, whining dog. You chase after him with a carving knife, tearing away its plastic protector as you run. But two sets of arms wrap behind you, before you can get the bastard. You kick and scream until they taser you. Better behave, kid, or you'll be getting more than just a restraining order, you hear one of the guards say as you flop around like you were giving birth while having a seizure. These results, of course, reveal a lot about your relationship with your mother. So each of the poets that you heard, except for Chelsea and I, um, who work for Little Patuxent Review, are in this current issue that is on the table right here. So if you enjoyed the work that you heard and would like to take some of it home with you, please, um, you're welcome to purchase some um, of the books there. They're on sale for $12. Wallace has his book on sale, Jordan Year, for 15. For 15. Um, so... You know, 30 will get you two. Um, so please, uh, please, um, I am so honored that you spent the evening with us. Um, thank you to all the contributors. Thank you to the Enoch Pratt for always being gracious hosts and uh, sponsoring this wonderful, wonderful contest. Um, I hope that we will all go back into the world a little more enriched, a little more inspired and ready to look at place and people in some new ways. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.